Yeah, and because of that conditioning, exactly because of that conditioning, because we're told that vulnerability is a weakness and we don't appreciate that vulnerability is a strength because it takes courage to, to, to tell people what you don't know. Mm. So, so actually, more vulnerable people are, are much stronger people. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message comes from professional relationship expert, Andy Lapata who believes perfection is a deal breaker. In today's discussion, Lapata reveals how active listening, out of all things, is the most important part of building a strong relationship, when to eliminate toxic people out of your circle, and why vulnerable leaders are at an all-time premium. So without further interruption, may I introduce to you Episode 184 with the real Andy Lapata. Enjoy. So, folks, if this is the first time you're watching this interview on Crowdcast, let me tell you what this platform is. This platform is a live streaming platform. So, uh, it allows the audience to engage, ask questions, um, and really be a part of the conversation before this goes live out to all of our podcast channels on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all those good places. It's also streaming on LinkedIn. So if you're watching this on LinkedIn right now and you want to come on over and ask Andy your questions for after the show, please do so. Hit that link that's on that post and come on over to Crowdcast. Andy, with that being said, let's get this show on the road here. What do you say? Sounds like a plan. All right, let's do it. Here we go now in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is author, keynote speaker, and podcaster on professional relationships is Mr. Andy Lapata. Andy, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for inviting me, Kevin. So a pleasure having you on. So professional relationships. Tell us a little bit about how you got into professional relationships and why you think it's so important. Well, I've been working in the field of networking and professional relationships for 22 years now. Um, My father co-founded a business network way back in 98. And then I joined about six months later. Uh, And we worked together in that business for about seven years. founded and folded very quickly a very early stage social network called Word of Mouse. Um, and, and in that time, uh, I'd been introduced to the world of speaking and writing, wrote my first couple of books while we were running the network. Uh, and so so the, the, we moved away from running networking groups into teaching networking. Um, but the biggest challenge was, you know, for a long, long time, even though I ran networking groups, for me, networking hasn't been about networking events or networking sites. It's been about your network and your engagement with the network. And your network can be someone that you know through friends or family. It could be someone that you met at a dinner party. It could be someone someone else introduced you to. It doesn't have to come through a networking event. And, and trying to reframe networking to that broader uh, definition proved a huge challenge. And then interestingly, as soon as I started talking about professional relationships, exactly the same thing with a different label, people seem to get it and be much more open to the broader perspective of it. So I love this because what I can't stand about LinkedIn is that you connect with somebody and you try to grow your audience and you just want to tell people how 
good you are and how cool you're doing. I think that's one of the worst things for society. What to you like makes a good connection? Well, on that LinkedIn uh, approach, I mean, my business strap line is connecting is not enough. And I don't just click connect, you know, click accept if someone's click connect. I think that's meaningless. Even if that's my prime prospect, right. engage in a conversation with me. And I think one of the golden rules uh, of social media and of personal interaction is engage, don't broadcast. Earn the right. Stephen Covey talked about emotional bank accounts and how we need to invest in relationships before we seek to withdraw. Uh, and and so and that that's not as 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 blunt and as binary as I've given X amount to you, therefore you owe me Y. Um, it, it's much more seeing about supporting your network, engaging with your network, investing in your network, and your network will will support you in return. So once you understand that, once you have this mindset of connecting is not enough, and it's about conversation and engagement and mutual support and just finding people you have a rapport with and something in common with, then you're starting to engage in the right way naturally. It just shifts naturally. When it's done without authenticity, it shines through. Um, I, I've, you know, I've met people who have clearly been on courses that's that, where they, they, they share the same principles but without the, 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 the nuance. So they say, you've got to give first. So you meet someone for the first time and the first thing they say is, how can I help you? I'm like, well, you haven't met me yet. You don't necessarily want to help me. Get to know me first. Um, so I think where it comes from a natural place, an authentic place, then things, uh, then you engage in a in a more natural manner anyway. Now, with it being so natural, it's got to be kind of a different process for everybody. What are some, you know, stages or some guidelines you could give to someone watching this to make sure that they're not you know, overstepping the boundaries of what yeah. makes a meaningful connection. Listen, listen more than talk. You listen with your eyes and your ears and all your senses. Uh, I don't just mean listen to what people say. Uh, I mean, really pay attention to other people. Uh, and this goes ag again into to Covey's work of listening for, you know, uh, listening for people, what I call listening for people, but active listening mm. and engaging with people. Uh, <laughs> I don't believe in books that give you a list of questions to ask someone when you meet them for the first time, because you sound like someone who's read a book with a list of questions to ask people. I can't tell you how to take someone from, I, I have a model of the seven stages of professional relationship. I can't give you a generic way to move someone from stage one to two to three to four to five to six mm. to seven, because everyone is different. So you have to engage truly with the other person. And if you do that, you, you pick up the science. Um, also, take yourself out of the equation. Don't stop letting your, your ego dictate your actions. I think it's it's very easy to to say, well, this person's not interested in me, or I have no rapport with them. And I can be guilty of that, mm. but it's actually they've got a different style to you. They might be more introverted. They might be more analytical. They may take a bit longer to warm to people, or they may show they may show more respect than than outward liking. But it doesn't mean they don't like you. Um, so I, I think that taking that ego out of the equation uh, and just engaging in every relationship naturally makes a difference. And then finally, and, and interestingly, I was working with some clients yesterday, and this was a key 
thing we talked about because they're driven by short-term targets. They have bosses and a big organization who's saying, we need short-term results. And as soon as you're in that position, that impacts how you can build that rapport because you're angling for something straight away. If you can take that neediness out of the interaction and you just engage to build your network in the knowledge that as you grow your network, you will have the support you need from those people with whom you've been investing in those relationships. Mm. Um, as soon as the neediness is out of the equation, then it becomes easier to find that rapport and to move that relation that relationship forward. So again, it comes back to authenticity and being natural, which I know can sound trite and cliched, but you know things are cliched for a reason. It, you know, it's a running a podcast that's like real leaders. You know, when people say real, it's like you want like that authenticity part of that. Yeah. But you also, you got to say, well, what is authenticity? And why isn't it anywhere that you see on LinkedIn? Why isn't it when you meet someone, it's kind of the superficial, I've got to tell you everything I know. And, and I, I really kind of like what you're saying around just being authentic. Don't come in predetermined. But I also think being real is, is getting to know yourself. And the more you get to know yourself, hopefully you'll understand how imperfect you are and how imperfect human beings are. So when it comes to relaying that, expressing that, and connecting on this imperfection, is that a good kind of way to just break down barriers and get to know somebody? It's absolutely a way to break down barriers and get to know somebody. And I, we could do the whole conversation on this topic because it's such an important one right now mm -hmm. and keep going up. You know, it's eight o'clock at night in the UK now. And just before coming on, I looked in the mirror and I thought, oh, I could shave and I, you know, I feel tired. It's been a very long day and I probably look tired. And I thought, but that's who I am right now. And if I start trying to present, and I've also got lockdown hair. Now, if you're listening to the podcast, you can't see any of this, which is probably a good thing. Um, but, you know, I looked at that, that's who I am in this moment. Um, and, and, you know, having watched some of your, your videos before, I thought, okay, that's going to be fine, you know, for this environment. And that's, that's who I am at the moment. So I think it's key to be okay with that. Um, the reason this is such a hot topic at the moment for me particularly, I think it's a hot topic for everyone because of what we've been through over the last 12 months. Uh, but my last book, which came out in December, is about vulnerability. So obviously vulnerability becomes the hot topic. And I've been asked to, to write a lot of articles recently and comment a lot about whether leaders can be vulnerable. Uh, and it's become a bit of a mission for me to try and get across this message that vulnerability is a strength and leaders who show vulnerability are strong leaders. And that goes against the narrative we've been force fed since at least the 1980s and probably earlier than that. Uh, I mean, I, I read um, Mary Trump's book um, uh, recently, and I don't want to get political on the show because everyone will have their different opinion. But but reading Fred Trump and the way he brought his family up, it was exactly the, the archetype we've been force fed of, of, you know, you don't lose and any, you know, any vulnerability is a weakness. You don't show the cracks. And, you know, we see that in The Apprentice. We see that in, in the UK. We call it Dragon's Den. I'm not I think it's a different name. Uh, um, gone off, off out of my head at the moment, but in the US, you have the same show where where people pitch a new business idea to a panel. Um, sure. uh, but, 
Shark Tank, yes. Um, so we call it Dragon's Den, you call it Shark Tank. It's always scary animals, which sums up my point completely. Um, and, and all of the, you know, everyone makes it. In fact, I, I spoke to someone who was one of the original dragons, and they told me that they used to, this is the BBC series, they used to make people walk up five flights of stairs carrying everything they needed to present so that as soon as they started, and they would have to get straight into it as soon as they were there, they would be sweaty, they would be out of breath, they would look weak. And, and, and the message that these programs are force-fed us with, films like Wall Street, that culture, is might is right. We have to be powerful. And, and, and so people think that you have to be invulnerable. Studies show that that's not the case. There's a study in my book from Harvard Business School where they looked at the impact of leaders sharing uh, their, their fallibility on, um, on the people listen to, uh, listening to them and engaging with them. And they measured two types of envy, benign envy, which was, you know, benign envy is I want to be like you. I, I, I admire what you've achieved and I want to, to achieve that as well. And malicious envy, which you can imagine, I want to see you fall off your, you know, off your pedestal. And they found that if someone just shared their successes, levels of benign envy were higher. If they shared their success, but they shared where they found it difficult along the way, um, sorry, the, the first one, malicious envy was higher. When they shared where they fell along the way, benign envy came up, malicious envy went down. Um, so when we share that we're human, when we share that we're fallible, that we don't know all the answers, people engage with us more. And that goes to your question. You know, yes, show your vulnerability, show your human side, and people will engage with you. And the last thing I'll say on that is when I'm delivering my talks on this topic now on Just Ask, I start by sharing a very painful personal story from the beginning of the pandemic that probably has everything in it. You know, you know, family trauma, um, my father passing away, uh, business being in, in dead trouble, all of these things. And I found that since I've included stories like that and all through my career i can track it if i've not planned it but if i've shared my vulnerability the engagement from the audience ramps up so much uh, so much higher and it's not planned that way but i know the impact that has right i mean it has to right it's like here's this keynote speaker author podcaster talking about relationships and how to build strong ones but when it comes to his own personal family it's very difficult and that's human yeah. That's normal. And I think yeah. people can relate to that. And so when you, and I'm a culprit of it too, when I go to LinkedIn or I want to post something and it's not that, you know, maybe I like to tell myself, you know, it's not just because of this, but honestly, like, why else am I doing it? You know, at the same time, like, why else am I doing it? You know, I want to drive the views. I want to drive this. I want to make sure people are aware of kind of what's going on. But, you know, at the same time, like, I'm still trying to figure this out as well. You know, like I've got issues too. I'm okay with saying my family has addiction in it. I'm okay with saying maybe I drink too much on the weekends. You know, it's it's totally fine with me to get those things out. But when I was first starting out, very difficult to do. Yeah, yeah. And because of that conditioning, exactly because of that conditioning, because we're told that vulnerability is a weakness and we don't appreciate that vulnerability is a strength because it takes courage to 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 tell people what you don't know. Mm. So, so actually more vulnerable people are, are much stronger people 
Exactly. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. And I think, you know, if we can live in a society that's a society that embraces imperfection, it would be a much better one and get greedy about embracing imperfection. I think we're moving that way. Not quickly enough. The last year has accelerated that. But, you know, Brené Brown brought out her TED talk on vulnerability and her books on the topic 10 years ago. We've had celebrities open up about depression, about alcoholism, about family breakdown. We've had the royals in the UK, particularly. I'm not allowed. To, I'm not sure if we're allowed to call him Prince Harry anymore, but uh, particularly William and Harry uh, talk about a lot of. They're very open uh, about their vulnerability, and of course, um, you know, we, we've got the the interview with Oprah as we record this, you know, imminent. Um, but I think those public conversations from people we put on pedestals are so important because they drive our society to know that it's okay. When when people turn around to me and they say they have a fear of public speaking and they get nervous when they speak in public, the first thing I say to them is, so do I. Right. And they look shocked, particularly if they've seen me speak, because you wouldn't know if you saw me on stage what's going on behind the mask. But I've, I've sat in an audience waiting to go on and my inner dialogue at that point is telling me i've forgotten what i'm going to talk about why do they want to listen to me anyway why are they paying me this much money all these things are going to my head i'm not as good as the person who's up there now in the meantime physically my body is rebelling against the whole concept that i'm about to go up on that stage and stand in front of a hundred people a thousand people whatever it might be but when I'm there, I've learned to to cope with it. I've learned to to adjust and I've learned to channel that energy in a positive way so people don't know that I'm feeling that. So when I tell them that I'm going through the same as they are still after all these years of doing it, that helps them. Now, when it comes to public speaking, how, how have you evolved? How have you grown uh, from when you started to where you are now and how you perceive what a good public speaker does i would like to think that i have grown uh, enormously i always say to people it's not for me to judge how good a speaker or otherwise i am that's for other people but i'm definitely many 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 times better than i was when i started i've been a, a member and then a fellow of the professional speaking association since 2003 that's you might know the nsa the national speaking association national speakers association in america so that's our sister organization i've been on the board twice i'm currently president of the fellows community uh, which is the sort of highest level and and i've received the award of excellence so there is some external recognition there that that, that i'm i'm good at the job um but it's that community that's taught me um, by analyzing other people, by learning from what they do, by discussing what the strengths are and, uh, and what the weaknesses are and how they present, um, by constantly getting feedback on what I'm doing, uh, I've adapted. Um, so it's not just about um, mastering the nerves, but it's understanding the stagecraft, learning how to um, put a presentation together. So for example, just ask the presentation I mentioned, um, one of my colleagues came to see see me deliver it in quite an early iteration, and 
I got a standing ovation, which, you know, for someone who talks about professional relationships is rare and it's not what I go looking for, but it's lovely when that happens. So many, much more important to me, so many people came up to me afterwards and said how it had moved them, what impact it had had on them and what they wanted to do as a result. People still talked about it months later, but my colleague just turned around to me and said, you shared everyone else's story, you didn't share your own. Mm. And we rewrote the entire talk. Mm. So even something that has gone well, we've made better uh, and what i've been doing today the reason i'm so tired today is i've been working on a script that actually incorporates the old talk into the new one because i need an extended version and i now know i mean this is taking me two or three days worth of work to to, to plan this talk but it's even better as a result so you're constantly seeking uh, to improve and, and constantly seeking to grow I've, I've always i've always said that the day i stop learning is the day i stop bothering and with speaking, that's absolutely key. Andy, I feel like you're hinting at this story and it's just building up and the anticipation is now simmering. I got to hear it. What is your story? Well, I mean, I wasn't, I, that's not what I was angling for. I mean, the, the story, there are several stories. I mean, the, the stories in the book, the personal ones there are not the same as the story in the talk now because mm. that post-dates the, the book. Um, and in fact, the story, the personal story in the book changed because the challenge getting the book published, it took three years. I had a contract with a major global independent publisher, very well-known name. It didn't work out. And that was a challenge in itself as I kept having to go back to the drawing board. So that's in the book now. The, the, the story I'm sharing now is, is what I call my lockdown story, which I'm sure everyone has got. Um, but the, the, the brief version of it is that uh, we had a pretty bad 2019 as a business. It's a family business. I co-founded it with my father, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, my mother retired from teaching uh, a few years ago and joined the business as well and handles all my back office, the admin and, and the finances and so forth. And um, we'd had a pretty bad 2019. I was working hard on on pivoting and moving stuff around and we were making progress there and then the pandemic came and of course my business is based on being in person live events training conferences whatever it might be so we saw those opportunities that we finally managed to get in disappear uh, and a lot of potential money and a lot of money that was confirmed as well as money that had been paid those events just went um, and our government, the British government, for, for whatever I think of them or anyone thinks of them, and I'm not the biggest fan, I'll be honest, um, I think that the way they've handled the support for business during the pandemic has been very good. And it's been world leading in a lot of ways. But we were left behind for a long time. So I saw a lot of support go out to other businesses, but we didn't qualify for any of it. Hmm. And all the time we had no income. I can't sell. How can you sell to people who don't even know if they've got a job next week? Certainly not looking to invest in training and, and conferences and events when that whole world has dried up. Um, and there was nothing, no support for us. And we're, we're all coming off the back of a bad year. So we're going closer and closer to our overdraft limit. And then the government announced something called the bounce back loan. And the bounce back loan um, was a loan from your bank, but underwritten by the government. So there was no testing, no credit reports, uh, no no check on your, your your last year's accounts, which wouldn't have been too too hot for us. Um, you could just apply for a loan, uh, delayed repayments for a year, very low interest rates underwritten by the government. That was our lifeline. And by this stage, 
I had started to bring in some opportunities. So the business was turning around. So I saw that as the bridge to get us just away from that dreaded overdraft limit uh, and keep us going until that new money started to flow in. So we mm. applied for that. Now, so it's my mum who handled the back office who, who put in the application. In the meantime, my father was very ill. I think I mentioned that he, he passed away in September. And my mum uh, was uh, caring for him. Uh, during the pandemic, my sister and I both lived close by, but we couldn't, we could visit, but we had to keep our distance. So we couldn't really help out. We hadn't touched either of my parents for about three or four months. And then one day I got a phone call from my dad's carer. And my, you know, he had a carer come in a couple of times a week to give my mum a break. Never called me before. So immediately something's wrong. And I rushed over and my mum was having a panic attack. And very, very hard. It was no decision at all, but it was a hard decision. Um, I went over and held my mum for the first time in months, not supposed to do it. But what else are you going to do in that scenario? Sure. Um, and and the, the trigger for the panic attack was she'd got an automated letter from the bank saying, because of checks, we have to make uh, with your application, we find you don't qualify for a loan. Mm. Uh, your application is therefore cancelled. Mm. No, no explanation, no reason. And I Googled, I couldn't find a reason. Uh, there was no appeal, no phone number, no right of review, nothing. Just your application is cancelled. And she was, she, she was hyperventilating and saying, it's me, I did something wrong, I put something wrong on the application. Um, so that's... That's the, the the front end of the story. I then the key point of sharing that is I then had to go out and wear a mask. All of this stuff is going on in the background, but I've got to talk to my clients, to my prospects, to my network, and I've got to present um, a smile and, and a strong front. All of the time, this is going on in the background. Mm. The good news: every story needs a happy ending. Um, is that we got the loan. It turned out I, I, I'm like a pit bull, you know, with a toy or something like that. And I, I, I use my network. I, I, I found out who to write to, CEO of the bank. I, I, I wrote my local member of parliament uh, into this and I wouldn't let go until we resolve this. And we found out that there was a batch of, of businesses with accounts with that bank where an external credit agency had put a black mark for fraud on their account despite there being no apparent fraud and no one knowing what it was about. And so we managed to get that removed. Um, we got our loan. We got a 250 pound apology. And my mum got a big, um, a big hamper and a, and a big vase of flowers from the bank to say sorry. Um, and what's also nice about that is that there are other businesses who didn't probably never knew they had that black mark on their file and would have gone through the same as us and they had that black mark removed um so yeah so that's i mean that's one story that's the story i'm sharing in this presentation we all have those stories um and the, the beauty of those stories is that it, it reveals the human being behind the, the person on the pedestal uh it, it because we all have those stories we can all engage with other people's stories that are similar you know when i tell my story when i tell other people's stories I see people in the audience nodding along because they recognize it. And because they recognize it, they engage with you much more. It resonates with them. Um, and it's powerful. 
It is powerful. And I, and I think it's, it's strange that, you know, someone can say that that would not be an essential operation for, because of its, its powerfulness, uh, yeah. you know, it, and so like, I, I guess I just think about that and I go, you know, who has the power to stop someone from sharing, you know, a story like this. And that's what actually trans- changes lives. Nothing yeah. changes lives more than, you know, feelings, emotions, love, but conversations, speech, articulating something to somebody to motivate them to do other things and change their perspective, change their behaviors, change their actions. How is that not essential? So uh, it's a difficult line that's blurred. And I'm really, you know, it's really unfortunate that that had to happen to you, to your family. Obviously it was a big burden. Thank you. But you, you, you know, it, it, it was hard. It was a very tough moment. It, 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 um, when you get to the end of it, you can look back and tell the stories. What, you know, I've said about this pandemic all along and, and I must admit this calendar year, um, it's got harder, you know, mm-hmm. and my mum lost, you know, her husband of, of 55 years, um, at, at the worst possible time when she couldn't go out and see people and couldn't have a family around her. That's that is harder for her than it is for me. I'm finding it tough. Mm. But all the time I'm saying one day we'll t- we'll look back. <laughs> sounds it sounds quite cheesy when I say it like that. But one day we'll we'll look back on this and it be a story we tell. Do you remember what it was like during the pandemic? You know, I, I heard on the television earlier in the week that already people are are hoarding um, the signs that our government have had up. You know, on the lecterns and things that they can grab to go in museums. Uh, and in a year's time, this will all be, you know, a museum display. We'll walk around and say, I remember that. And I think we have to hold on to that when, when times get tough. Um, the, the, it's, it is part of the journey. And it's, it's a lot easier said than done. I can promise you that. Um, but, but it, you know, I remember, on a, you know, on, on, on a, I guess, a much smaller scale. But if you're in it, it doesn't feel it. And then we've all been in there, I'm sure. Um, I remember someone that I, I met through my networking years ago um she was part of a, a a group of students that i spoke to and really stood out from that group and we stayed in touch and she just opened up to me one night years ago about a decade ago i think and her boyfriend had walked out on her and she'd have been in her 20s and this was the end of the world and i said to her you'll meet someone else and you'll forget all about this guy and exactly that happened within six months. She went from the end of the world to top of the world in six months. And I doubt she ever thought, and she's still with, with the same guy. Mm. Uh, I doubt she's ever remembered that conversation. But in that moment, it's everything. Uh, and we, when we are in tough times, we've got to hold on to that. And when we can share those stories with other people, and that's where the vulnerability piece comes in, um, that makes it easier when we know other people have been through it it seems to be like there's a nice you know correlation between professional and personal relationships which is interesting because like your family has a different dynamic and maybe different boundaries than maybe a professional relationship would yet we're like we're still struggling people listening to this they all have that brother that aunt that sister that mom that dad that they don't talk to Ooh right now when it comes to professional relationships how do you make sure that you don't get to that place it's difficult and you're going to i'll be honest there are people i've 
had professional relationships with that I, I'm in that place with. Mm. I, I don't pretend to be the, the master of um, being friends with everyone. I don't have that personality, unfortunately. I'm trying to be a better person and a more forgiving person. But, you know, sometimes people show to me what I see as their true colours. Uh, and for different reasons, you know, I, I've actually got stronger in the last few years of saying, well, actually, that's not the type of person I want to be associated with mm. and being able to walk away. There are other people where you just come in and out of each other's lives. And there's people where we've we've fallen, we've drifted apart, but then suddenly we've come back together again. And there's never anything in it other than just circumstance. But there's a handful of occasions where we we have got to that point. But there's also occasions where we pulled it back from the brink. And I think those occasions are where one or the other of you um, is brave enough to swallow pride, uh, address the elephant in the room. Uh, and and just the, the thing I learned a few years ago, um, or one of the things, and I, I did a self-development program a few years ago that really helped me in, in the way I, I, I handle personal uh, relationships. And a couple of things I learned was, number one, um, nothing anyone does has any reason other than the reason we give to it, we attribute to it. And I think that that's very powerful when you look at a lot of relationship breakdowns and you say, I'm not talking to them because this is how I interpreted their actions. But actually, that might not be why they did. They may just have had a bad day. They may just, you know, it might relate to something, some someone who, who had treated them badly in the past and what I did reminded them of that. It could be a range of things. Um, so there's that not attributing it to, you know, make, making yourself the reason, I think, is a good way of looking at it. And And the other is just control what you can control. And don't worry about other stuff. And, um, you know, I try not to let that negativity sort of drag away and, and not making people wrong about things. So I've had a couple that spring to mind with long-term professional colleagues, um, one where um, that person stepped forward and, and, and messaged me and said, look, I think we've both probably said things we didn't mean. We'd, we'd exchanged some really angry voice messages with each other. It's not a clever way of doing it. And left each other fuming. And he, he that and he said, I'm sure we both regret that. But for my part, I'm sorry, he said. And, and I respect you too much to to, uh, to let that get in the way. And another one where I, I felt the other person was in the wrong, but and I was waiting for an apology. And when it was forthcoming, I decided it's not forthcoming. That's fine. Mm. Uh, let's just move on with our friendship and not let it get in the way and just put that behind us um i would love to say i'm a perfect person i do that every time i don't i should but i don't um but that's how uh, you know the, the way you do it is by swallowing your ego um mm. and looking at the bigger picture and say do i want this person in my life or not if you think well actually i'm not that bothered that's a message enough um but if you value them then you'll swallow your ego and, and i think that's also like the deepest form of respect and flattery mm. you're able to sit down and have a conversation with someone look them in the eye and say look this is where i stand this is where you're standing that's okay you know yeah. and, and have those type of conversations the thing about i would say many successful people a lot of people that may have come on the show is they have a strong sense of values and a strong sense mm -hmm. of self-awareness and also you know a strong sense of elimination 
when things that, that aren't in their shared values come into their life, they're able to identify that, eliminate that as soon as possible so they don't waste time. Yeah. Would you recommend that? Would you recommend eliminating things that aren't in your, in your shared values? I, I've, um, I've done it. Uh, I, I hovered for many years before done it. I've done it cut straight off because I've known it, but I've also in some bigger, deeper, longer standing relationships, I've recognized a lack of shared values, but I've also recognized a strong shared history. And I found that much harder. Um, it's not, I wouldn't sit here and say, you know, there's the classic, um, saying that was always in my mind about you are, you know, what you'll achieve is, is equal to the five people you surround yourself with the most. And I think that can be a bit too brutal. And I think that can be a bit too snobbish in, in, in some ways, sure. because what what one person brings to the table might be a different value to someone else. And if it doesn't bring you where you want to be in life, it doesn't necessarily negate its value for its own its own intrinsic um, uh, purposes. So I think that sometimes when someone really goes against your values and the way they've behaved, you go, OK, no, I can't do this then you you cut them loose and, and i've had that done to me and actually you have to think it through and handle it the right way because it's not pleasant to be on the receiving end of that so you have to weigh that up sometimes you can just allow things to drift and you know there are people where i was close i'm not close anymore but if i see them always be pleasant polite and share and reminisce but i might not be rushing over for dinner at their place or vice versa. Mm. well you wouldn't be at the moment anyway not in the uk it's illegal but um i i wouldn't i wouldn't be rushing to to break bread with them but that doesn't mean i won't uh, enjoy their company when i see them so when it comes to the size of the people you trust and want to build upon a relationship mm. you have a philosophy for you know strengthening the relationships that are closest to you versus trying to get as many connections on LinkedIn as possible? Yes. So, so I mentioned earlier that my business strapline is connecting is not enough. And I, I have a semi open uh, approach on LinkedIn. What I mean by that, I'm not a LinkedIn open networker where I'll connect with everyone. And actually my preferred approach would be only to connect with people I know. But, you know, someone messages me and says, I've read your book. I was at your talk. You know, mm. someone who's been one of the groups that I, I work with, even if I've not met them personally, if the fact that my work has, has resonated with them, I think it'd be childish of me not to connect. Um, so I tend to have a, a semi-open, semi-closed approach from that perspective. Part of the, There are many reasons for that. Part of the reason is I want a manageable network. And I want to know the people in my network. I want a genuine connection with them. I want conversation, which I mentioned earlier. Um, so I, I, I talked about the seven stages of professional relationship. And when I introduce that to people, I talk about how we view networks and the mistake we make, because what we tend to do culturally is we view networks as binary. We say you're either in my network or you're out of my network. Sure. And we see networks as a box of people. That's not what a network looks like. Each of those people is an individual with whom you have a different relationship to everyone else. And they're at a different stage of relationship with you. So that's where I, I, I put together the seven stages of professional relationship. And you can map out the journey. So the seven stages are recognize, know, like, trust, which are the stages that Bob Berg has, has made famous. 
And so that's stages one, two, three, four. Uh, then five is support. And what I mean by support is a supporter is someone you could pick up the phone to and say, can you help me? And they will be happy to. Mm. Level six is advocate. An advocate is someone you don't need to pick up the phone. They're out there looking, recognizing opportunities for you, talking about you all the time. And then stage seven is friend. Now, you're not necessarily going to go along that route in that particular order with every stage. You might trust someone but not particularly like them you might not dislike them but the rapport the commonality might not be there but you can still be an advocate because you really value what they do and trust what they do so there are um you know th there are stages and uh, in there which can move around a bit particularly that like and trust and i would throw respect in there as well but my point is this what most people tend to do when they think about building networks is get more people in at levels one and two mm. whereas for me, you're much better off. Yes, particularly if you don't have a large network, you need to be adding to your network all the time. But focus on as well on the people in there who are levels one, two, and three and get them to four, five, and six. Because that's where your network really converts into support for you. Uh, you know, the people that have met you once or twice at events and you never talk to outside, you can't suddenly pick up the phone to them and say, listen, I, this has come up. I could really do with your help. They're not going to be recognizing an opportunity and thinking of you. Mm. So you need to bring them through that process to deepen the relationship, take them on that journey. Mm. Uh, and the interesting thing is whenever I do a talk on, on the topic of um, the power of professional relationships or connected leadership, I introduce the seven stages and I do a poll. And I asked two questions in the poll. What stage do you think the ideal level is for the, the, the relationships in your network, the mean level, you know, where you want the chunk of people? And the answer is always five to five and a half. The other question is, where are you now? And the answer is three to three and a half every single time. We have people who like us, maybe trust us, but we're not converting those people into really strong supporters and advocates. Now, whatever you're doing, you know, whether you're in a sales role and you want people to refer you, whether you are looking to progress your career and be, you know, be considered for those top positions. I mean, Harvey Coleman's work on, on this known as pie on promotions, you know, what, what elements go into promotion, performance, image and exposure. Um, back in, I think it was the 1990s, showed that image and exposure, by f then 90% of it, performance is only 10%, because you can do a fantastic job, but if people don't know the job you do, 30%, and the right people don't know, exposure, 60%, then it doesn't matter how good your job is, you're not going to get considered for that promotion. Hmm. So unless you've got those supporters and advocates, you're not going to get the promotion you want. You're not going to get headhunted. You're not going to get to be able to turn around to people and say, we're trying to get people to buy into this merger that we're, we're going into and understand its impact. Can you help us spread the message? All those things that leaders need to do in their role are enhanced by a strong professional relationship. So we've got to take people on that journey so we've got them. Interesting. Very interesting. Have you heard of seen influenced a sales team that isn't focused on quotas that isn't picking up the phone and trying to do a numbers game 10731 have you seen an organization that's able to incorporate a long term relationship building strategy that is effective and will outperform a cold calling strategy 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it won't do it overnight. Um, so I work, I work a lot with professional services firms and I've seen um, people then move away from that, you know, because being an accountant or a lawyer and going in cold calling and well, cold calling, you know, is, is almost sort of not allowed, uh, um, certainly in the UK, but certainly not acceptable in many cases. Um, but that hard nosed approach, um, when they've really embraced it, they've suddenly found referrals flowing in and they're getting bigger deals. Um, they're, 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 they're bypassing beauty parades, um, requests for tender, and they're getting, they're getting the opportunities in. I would say that when I go and work with organizations, so my two biggest clients at the moment are both in sectors which are traditional cold calling hard sales sectors. Um, and in both cases, I have the battle with them where the, the guys I work with, this is bigger sales clients, the guys I work with are under huge pressure to hit targets, particularly difficult during the pandemic when they can't get out and see people. Um, but their bosses have paid a lot of money to bring me in. So what I'm saying to them is, look, you're under this high pressure to get targets, but, but your bosses are investing in me and they know what I stand for. So you have to, you have to work the short-term targets while building the long-term strategy. Mm. So next year you become less reliant on the cold calling and the year after even less so and the year after even less so as the referrals mount, as the relationships deepen, it's a long-term strategy and that works. And, and one of the things I share with them is a very simple graph that shows, you know, the, the, um, the depth of the relationship um uh, on one axis and the length of the relationship on the other uh and typically you know there are times when you click with someone straight away and i've had it where they become your advocate bypassing every other um every other level of relationship and go straight into advocate uh I've, that's happened to me but i could name them you know it's, it's not that many um but it does happen but generally the shorter the relationship, the fewer the interactions, because inter it's not just length of relationship, it's number of positive, impactful interactions. Um, the, the, the shorter and the fewer, the, 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 the less strong the relationship. And if you then go in at that point and ask for the sale or ask for the referral, you might get it, but the relationship is going to suffer and it's going to be harder to build because it's going to either dip or just weaken because people are going to feel well you're only looking out you know you're only in it to get something from me mm. but if you keep investing in the relationship lots of positive two-way impactful interactions over a period of time the relationship strengthens it becomes natural to ask for help people don't you don't have to ask for a sale people buy from you and they'll refer you even without you asking so it's a long-term strategy, but yes, absolutely, I've seen it work. Now, what about automation? Like, where do you stand on automating? Like, we know you can't automate a good relationship, but certainly it does help with some different types of strategies. Where do you stand on automation in terms of sales? I'm not a big fan. Um, partly because I'm rubbish with process and everything that get, goes into building the automation, um, but it does have its place. You know, if someone is building automation into the sales flow, my advice would be think about how it impacts the person, uh, the recipient of your automated content. So 
avoid the dear first name. You know, I, if I see an email come into my inbox that's, hey, Andy, I want to tell you about this, I don't even open it. You know, that this, this, I think the people that have designed this and maybe they'll, you know, there'll be an automation expert will say, no, you're absolutely wrong. That gets higher open rates. I just know I don't open those straight away because I know it's automated. So it has to have a human voice, I believe, particularly if you're looking beyond just click rates and into relationship building. If you want to use automation to build relationships, it's got to feel like the human voice. And then you've got to know what's going out there. Uh, and, and let me extend automation into delegation. I got a LinkedIn connection request uh, a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And like like any like it, it was the standard, I want to add you to my professional network on LinkedIn. Now, I don't delete those. I reply to them. And I say, tell me more about why you want to connect. So what I do is I outline um, my approach to LinkedIn and explain why I don't accept automatically. And I say, but I don't like to ignore you. So tell me more about why you'd like to connect. The reply I got was, I'm sorry, I'm not interested right now. Thank you anyway. And I said, you contacted me. Right. And the reply was, oh, I'm sorry, I had someone do that for me. Now, do I have to add anything to that in terms of getting delegation automation wrong? No, not at all. Now, but here's the question then, you know, first impressions aren't everything, but they definitely make a difference. So yeah. what would you recommend to people, whether you're at a networking event, one, and then two, for like an, just an opening opening email? What What is, if I'm going to slide into Andy Lopata's DMs on LinkedIn, what am I going to say? Well, my first approach would always be to, um, to try and get a referral or an introduction from someone they trust. So I'm not going to go in cold, first of all, anyway. But, but let's assume that you are. I have something I call the eye test, and the eye test is key. And that is how many times you say I versus how many times you say you. Ooh. I had someone who replied to my uh, LinkedIn response to a, a blank connection request, and their response was 16 I's and zero U's. You know, I want to connect because I want to build my network, and I do this, and I this, and I that, and I that. 16 I's, no U's. No reference to looking at my profile. No reference to why I might want to connect with them. No reference to anything that I've said, blogged, posted, anything. Just all about them. And that gave me a very easy decision to make. So uh, Dale Carnegie said something along the lines of the sweetest sound to any man is the sound of his own name. Right. There's a famous piece of research. I've picked it up in two or three books, uh, well-known books, but I can't remember which ones they're in at the moment. Um, but it's research of... A researcher sat next to people on a plane and spent the whole flight asking them about themselves and never at one point talked about themselves. When the unsuspecting passenger walked off the plane, there was another researcher at the foot of the stairs. And by the way, they, they wouldn't have known the person sat next to them was involved in a research project. Um, as they came down the steps from the plane, another researcher there, excuse, excuse me, madam, excuse me, sir. Um, we're just doing some research just to find out about conversations on airplanes. Did you talk to the passenger next to you? Yes, I did. How would you describe them? Would you say they were interesting? Oh, very. Could you tell me their name? Right. They never told them their name. Right. They didn't even tell them their name. But the key is that if you talk to someone about them, they will find you interesting. Mm. So if you want to slip into 
uh, my DMs if you want to engage me, if you want to converse, then you say, Andy, I loved uh, your interview on Real Leaders. Loved what you said about, um, you know, the eye test. That really resonated with me. I'm accepting that one because it shows a real interest. I, and it's, it comes back to where we started. It comes back to that word authenticity. Um, I, I had a, a connection request, someone who replied to my message. No, actually, it was in the connection request. So kudos, they actually personalized it. But they said, I really like that you do this. And they picked one line from my profile. And I went back and I said, oh, thank you very much. What connection do you have with that organization you mentioned? Oh, none at all. They right. just picked a line from my profile. And it just shone of, okay, I've listened to people say you've got to show an interest, so I'll pick a line and I'll reference it. it, it yeah. you, you can pick out inauthenticity very easily. It's weak. It's lazy. Yeah. And going back to, you know, one of the first things we said, it's, you know, when you're talking about yourself, you're putting yourself on this pedestal. It's in people are imperfect beings. It's time for us to kind of accept that and, and you know, be real with what's going on. Be actually interested in what's going on. And, and, you know, unfortunately, it sounds like today on this call, you know, we're one of the only two people that really understand that we, we've got to build a separate world outside of that because the world that people are living in right now is just that the eye test so andy let's bring this full circle now we've talked about imperfection we've talked about building relationships you shared your story today on the show and lastly what we should say to people when we want to get to know them so let's bring this full circle what is your definition of a real leader well, I think my definition has probably come through in a lot of what I've said. I think a real leader is someone who whose leadership is about everyone, not about themselves. It's someone who who puts their ego to one side uh, and seeks to support others, help others, guide others, direct others, whatever it might be, but with the collective good in mind. I, I, I say puts their ego to one side very carefully. Because I think if you completely subsume your ego to the collective whole, you won't be a leader because you won't have the confidence to step forward into leadership. Mm. So, Kevin, we've only met tonight or this afternoon for you. Um, I'm guessing you have an ego. And that's not a bad thing, because if you didn't have an ego at all, you would not be able to sit here and put yourself front of camera and, you know, conduct these interviews brilliantly. But what you do is is you ask a question and you you listen you make this podcast about the uh the guest and about the listeners and not about yourself i listened back to one of my podcasts um that i published this week the other day and i'll be honest i turned around straight away and said i talk too much there now it was a slightly different format once a month i have a conversation rather than an interview with with another uh with a leadership strategist so that is designed for us both to talk equally but i talk too much in that in that interview and i recognize that but a real leader just asks the question and shuts up and listens and where they can contribute will jump in with the contribution so so they put their ego to one side but it still supports them on their journey I love it. I love it. It's very consistent theme throughout today's interview. Mm -hmm. Well, Andy, for Andy Lapata, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, be interested in others more than yourself. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Andy. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, folks. And thank you for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Andy Lapata. We hope you enjoyed it. 
as much as we did. See, that's my line after every single show. I like to say any, maybe I got right. a little bit. You, 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 you persuaded me. Uh, but folks, I had a great time speaking with Andy today. I hope you did as well. If you have any questions, please enter them into the chat box. Uh, Andy, I'll just kind of start us off with yeah. this. Um, when you are doing an interview for, for your podcast, I'm just curious as another podcaster, what are some things you like to do to prepare for the interview and to make sure you build that relationship from the start? A uh, couple of things. First of all, most of the people I interview... I... And folks, if you want to hear the rest oh, of Andy's answers, well, you have to be a part of our free community where you can unlock access to live interviews and ask the guests your direct questions after the show. All you have to do is go online to realleaders.com slash podcast and click on any past or upcoming interview. Also, folks, if you're on Apple Podcasts, help a leader out here. Come on, folks, help a leader out and leave a review to let me know what you liked and how I can improve. And lastly, if you want to email me directly about a leader who is driving change in your community, please email me directly at b at real-leaders.com. That's be at real-leaders.com. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode.